And what I want to do is, I want you to, to I'm going to teach you a new word. I want you to say it with me. Say, asymmetric. Ooh, you guys are smart. How many of you know what asymmetric means? Oh, wow. I'm impressed. I had to look it up. How many of you have ever heard of asymmetric warfare? Asymmetric warfare. You've heard of it. You just hadn't had a term. David and Goliath. Buster Douglas and Mike Tyson. University of Michigan, Appalachian State. I just had to slip that one in there. Jay wasn't here. Shoot. Well, let me tell you what asymmetric warfare is. Asymmetric warfare is war between two parties whose relative strength or power differs significantly and therefore whose strategy or tactics differ significantly. So... The little guy versus the big guy. Now, we're talking about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is asymmetric warfare. We're the little guy. We're against a force that's way, way greater than us. Now, there's some fine print to add to that. That's not the final word. But we're overmatched in spiritual warfare by ourselves, in ourselves. So we, we, we're going to look at a passage here in, in a second that showed us that behind, in all human evil, and then behind it is supernatural evil. So supernatural evil in its presence doesn't mean human beings aren't responsible and guilty for the choices they make. But from the very beginning of the Bible... All the way through to the end, we see that this world that we see has more to it than what we see. And what we don't see, that we can have eyes to see if we learn to, is super significant. And that behind your struggle with evil in your life and around your life is the presence the Bible takes seriously called supernatural evil. There are actual persons, personalities, spiritual personalities that the Bible calls demons, angels, Satan. There's, there's a whole world. It's a real world. And lots of people have written about this. The, the problem is, is when we bring this up, typically there's a lot of eye rolling, just to be honest with you. People are like, oh, come on. You know... We, we live in the age of cell phones, and we understand that illnesses come from uh, all kinds of verifiable reasons, and you're talking to us about, you know, hocus-pocus magic, and, well, the truth is, that kind of thinking, if, if I could be frank with you, exposes the fact that you are being acted on by the enemy of your soul and the end of our world, that if you take God seriously, the only way you can take God seriously in a certain sense, whatever you've learned about God, you've learned about him from some source. And if you've learned about it from the Bible, the Bible takes supernatural evil seriously. Seriously. And it, it, like we said last week, 
It, we're meant to take it seriously. And if we're not, then we are the victims. But we're all victims of spiritual warfare. But we are victims. We're ignorant victims. And we're way, way, way more prone to be troubled and hurt by things that we don't understand than we are by things that we understand. And particularly things that we understand that God gives us not just understanding, but he equips us to deal with it in a meaningful way. So I want to give you an example of asymmetric warfare that probably most of us are aware of. And because the, the truth is, when you talk about asymmetric warfare, and, and I say to you, you're overmatched, oftentimes the, the default response to that is, well, then why should I get into a, uh, into a losing fight? Why do we even want to fool with this thing? I, I'm just going to go over here and live the American dream and try to not get mixed up in that stuff. Because if I don't get mixed up in it, it, what I don't know can't hurt me, right? No. You are being hurt now. And one of the choices you're going to have to make, and we're going to keep talking about this for the next few weeks, is you've got to decide if you're going to be just a victim or you're going to be a, a participant and a, you know, a, a combatant in this battle. Because the, the folks who are the innocent bystanders just become collateral damage. The people who fight are the people who are the ones who have a lot higher chance of surviving and thriving, even in the middle of a war. So back in the 60s when I grew up, I was, I was just a child then. But in 1963, uh, Martin Luther King gave his famous I Had a Dream speech. Uh, it's, we've all, probably most of us have heard it. But at that time, there was no legal protection for black people in the United States in many respects. Uh, there were all kinds of laws on the books that, that allowed discrimination to go on. And, and at that time, two movements were growing in our country. There was a civil rights movement led by Martin Luther King, and then there was a black nationalist movement. And both of them were saying, this is wrong, what's going on? And they were both right. And the civil rights movement that Martin Luther King was leading espoused nonviolent confrontation. The black nationalist movement said, listen, if this is beyond nonviolent confrontation. This has gone on for, for hundreds of years. This is evil, the way that we're being treated. We need to fight it. And when that, those two voices were speaking, uh, a lot of people were paying attention. And they were trying to figure out, you know, there is something wrong. There was just a, a lot of talking about it going on. And in 1964, the, the Civil Rights Act was signed into law, and I'm not sure that's the exact name of it, but it empowered black Americans in a way that nothing had ever really empowered them before. But yet, I grew up in the South. I grew up in a segregated school district. I grew up, when I was a kid, I remember seeing black and white bathrooms, black and white water fountains, I remember the, the, like just two miles down the road from my nice middle-class neighborhood was a super impoverished black area. I mean, it was, it, there wasn't, there's, there's poverty among white people too. You know, Appalachia is, proves that. But this was just 
dirt poor black poverty. Now, my parents, we lived in a three-bedroom, one-bath, you know, 800-square-foot house. We weren't living the life of Riley. We were just an average middle-class family, but those people lived, and the school that they went to was, it sucked. That, that's a technical term. <laughs> it, was, it was horrendous. And so Martin Luther King said, we are not going to stand for this kind of injustice. We're going to expose it. We're going to expose the injustice through civil disobedience and nonviolent resistance. And I remember my parents were, were pretty liberal in this respect, and they just, they, they really, they talked to me about it, and they said, John, this is, this is wrong how we've treated, and they were part of it. My family's from the South, well, my dad's family's from the North, but my mom's family from the South, and, and I was around racism, raw racism, all the time. I mean, people dropped the N-word every day, multiple times. It was, it was just, you know, it was just normal, and it wasn't just normal to use the word. The attitude, the worst possible attitude behind it was part of why it was expressed, and it was expressed towards people who are made in the image of God, which the Bible says we shouldn't disrespect the image of God because we're disrespecting God. That's why we believe in human rights. That's why Christians are the only ones who have a basis for why they think all people are created equal. Because it says created equal. Now, it doesn't mean they're always treated equal. So this is not meant to be a, a civil rights teaching, by the way. But what they did was they exposed the injustice. And no one liked it. The black nationalists who said, we need to address this in a violent manner, they didn't like it because they thought you were selling out. You're letting them off. And Martin Luther, Martin Luther King used to say this. He used to say, the greatest obstacle to our realizing our rights is the white people that support us. Not the black nationalists, not the white racist KKK people. It's the people who won't stand up and denounce the injustice. They just ignore it. Now, what they were involved in was spiritual warfare. It was injustice. It was evil. Now, you may disagree with me, but I think you need to read the historical record more closely to see it. Now, it didn't just happen in the United States. There, there is racial problems in Japan. There's racial problems in Russia. There's racial problems in Puerto Rico. There's racial problems in Guatemala. There is racial problems anywhere you go because whoever the majority is just oppresses the minority and as much as they can, as much as their conscience will allow them. It's a human problem throughout history. I don't think that, that you can dispute that. But what is, the problem is, is we don't realize how much that's spiritual warfare. And what Paul says in the passage we're reading is he says, and I'm going to read it to you. Finally, and we saw last week, that doesn't mean, okay, this is the end of everything he's saying. It means from now on, after everything he's taught about what God's done in Christ and what the kingdom brings into the world, he says, from now on, 
for the rest of your life, this is what you're going to experience. You're going to experience this conflict between my kingdom and this kingdom of darkness. And you can't see it, but you can see it. You can't see it, but you can see it. Do you get what I'm saying there? You can't see it. It's rare to see a demon, a real spiritual entity that's opposed to God. But you can see what that demon does. And I, I, I've had multiple friends tell me this. Like, I've had friends who are really hard drug users. Friends who are into all kinds of, you know, the wrong stuff. And they will tell me, when they're traveling to a place they've never been before. Like one of my friends said, I knew when I went to this city in Europe, I landed and I thought to myself, I want to score some drugs. And he said, I got in a cab and I had the cab. I said, just drive me around town. And he said, I didn't even look for anybody that looked like a drug dealer. He said, I just got into this one part of town and I told the cabbie, let me out here. I knew I could score drugs here, and he did. And evil is everywhere, and it, it, it's working on us. It's behind and involved in all the stuff that's wrong. Now, we're supposed to be responsible for that, but it's there. It's real. So Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. And if you've read the first part of the book of Ephesians, it's all about... There, it's all about God's power. This, this book, this letter to Ephesus, talks about God's power more than all the other letters of Paul put together. And it's because Ephesus in the ancient world was considered the center of occult activity in the ancient world. I've got a number of books now that scholars have come out and they've found all kinds of writing and things about demonic activity. And so the people in Ephesus were familiar that there is a real dark world. And they used to try to manipulate it with charms and formulas and technology. And people would actually wear bracelets into wrestling contests that would be blessed by shamans and priests so they could win their contest. And you can go into the Ephesian records of these events and they make them take them off because they saw these people. It's unfair. For you to have this power, it's sort of like they were doping back then, right? Literally, this is true. There is cause and effect. There's a spiritual world that can impact the real world we live in. And so, just to tie up the loose end, the people who were engaged in the civil rights movement who espoused nonviolence were following the way of Jesus in this respect, they had no standing, they had no social power, they had no money, they had no anything, and yet they prevailed. Because they had two things. They had all the ways that they did things, were the arm, they, 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 they aligned up with the armor of God, and, and they constantly trusted God. You go back and you read the stories in these churches of how they prayed. Now, were they perfect people? No. Was Martin Luther King perfect? No. But who is? People, people poke at him and say, he wasn't King David. Well, thank God he wasn't King David. King David was pretty much a mess, but he was also a man after God's heart. 
I mean, how many wives did King David have? How many concubines? Bathsheba. I mean, numbering Israel. We, I'm not talking down holiness. I'm just saying we can poke at people like Martin Luther King to, to, to get the truth off our back. You know what I mean? And, and it's an ad hominem attack because he's not the truth. It's not about Martin Luther King in this whole issue. It's about a greater truth. So Paul's telling them, he says, be strong in the Lord, the strength of his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Then he develops a little bit. Now we're going to stop here. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood only, but against rulers, authorities, and powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. So what he says is, we got a massive army that's assaulting us. We can't even see them, but we can see them. So he says, I, I'm going to show you what God has. And he gives them three strategic statements that he, that he links together and then he unpacks it. He says, be strong in the Lord, put on his full armor, and then stand. And all the talk about spiritual war, warfare, if you read it in Peter and James and other places, it comes down to this thing. You've got to be strong in the Lord. We're going to talk about that today. Next week, we're going to talk about what it means to put on the full armor. And then the week after, well, a couple of weeks, at stand. Because those are the three things you have to do. That's what Jesus did. You, there's stories in the Bible. I'm going to show you one in a second. It's one of the most familiar ones that, that, that everyone seems to know about, whether they know the Bible or not. So, being strengthened by the mighty power of the Lord... I'm going to take you back to Ephesians 1. What Paul is saying is, this is asymmetrical warfare. You're overmatched. And so you need to be strong in the Lord. Did you notice he doesn't say, you can kick his butt. You you got what it takes. He didn't say that. He didn't say, you're smart enough, you know. You got science now. He says, you need to be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Now, He's already mentioned that power and described where it comes from multiple times in the first part of this letter. I'm going to go back to one of the first places, and I want you to to read with me. So open your Bible to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Just a couple of verses here. Here's what he says. And he's praying this prayer for them. Because the whole thing about spiritual warfare is, you got to see. Because... You see, but you don't see. You see, but you don't see. And so Paul says, you've got to see. And he says, because you've got to see, I'm going to pray for you to be able to see. So look at verse 18. He says, or verse 15, for this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, that he may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so you may know him better. So he says, I want you to see who God is and what he's like. Because the Bible says, in his light, we see. In his light, that's when we start seeing. Like C.S. Lewis said, I don't believe the Bible because it, all of it explains. He says, but it's because... 
what it says, I can see everything else. Everything else makes sense to me in light of this. This is what happens when you start getting to know God better personally. Because that word know there, and we've talked about this before, it's that Greek word that means to know by experience. It's not head knowledge. It's heart experience knowledge. The church is full of people who know all these facts about God, but they don't have experience of him. And, and James, James says, the devil believes, but he shudders. The devil knows who God is, but he's afraid. He doesn't believe in the sense that, the truest sense of the word. And so there's a difference. And if you're here, perhaps this will stir you for a second to, to say, my faith is supposed to be deeper than my head. It's supposed to impact my heart and my life. And if it isn't, an experience thing, and don't let people tell you, don't chase experiences. That's what Paul's praying for them to have. So who are you going to listen to? The people who say, don't chase experiences or the Bible. The vineyard gets a lot of heat because we believe in experience. Paul is praying for them to have an experience. Okay. I hope I could really get sarcastic here. I'm going to reel it in. He says, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Now listen to this. And the incomparably great power for us who believe. So he says, God who made everything that's all. He is a measurable plow. It's, 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 what does he call it? It's incomparably great. These are superlatives. And he says, I pray that you would begin to know it. And there's that word again. That you would know that. That you would experience it. And now, he goes, well, what does that power look like? If you're wondering, is it the power that I can make a mountain that's too big for me to lift? You know, is it some parlor game? No. He says this is where the power was revealed that we can tap into. He says that power is like the working of his mighty strength which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. So he's far above those that killed him. He's far above sickness. He's far above injustice and racial inequality. He's far above violence. He's far above trafficking. All those, these intractable problems that we face. Poverty, death, Jesus conquered them all. Now, it looked like the defeat when he was crucified because it's, it's a contradiction in terms. We've talked about this many times. A crucified Messiah. Messiah means the almighty, powerful one anointed by God. Yeah, if you're almighty and powerful, how on earth do you get killed? Because it was the plan of God because that's where the power is released is in his death and faith in him. And so he says here, that Jesus now, who, has a, who had a despised name because of the way he died, now has the name above every name. And, and, the, and the name there just doesn't, it, it means power. 
It means power. Who has the most power? Jesus does now. Because what he did, he did according to the plan of God. And God vindicated him and raised him from the dead. And now he's seating at the Father's right hand. And he's ruling and reigning. And this is what he says. And God placed all things under his feet. And he's evoking an image of, of a king sitting on a throne and, and you know, the defeated powers and servants and everyone below him. He, he has power over them. He appointed him to be head over everything for the church. You get that? That's what Martin Luther King grabbed onto. He said, Jesus is ruling over He's greater than this injustice that we face every day when they, we have to sit in the back of the bus and we shouldn't be forced to do that. That's degrading. It's evil. We're calling it out. But when they called it out, what happened? They got dogs set on them. They got water, down, water, you know, water cannons. They were beaten. And then when it got televised, the conscience of our country awakened, started awakening. It's still awakening. It's a, it's, a, it's a journey. He, Martin Luther King, you have to read his writings. He believed they would prevail because Jesus was on the throne. But it wasn't like snap, boom, you know, a, a two-hit fight. I hit you, you, you hit the ground. It clearly, there's no evil, and the worst evil, like injustice, does not fall like that. Because do we know... I think we could all say that, that Martin Luther King's battle was largely a successful one. But is, is there still racial injustice? Is, is, there's all kinds of injustice. That's, that's the essence. The Bible says God is just. He created the world to be just, but because it's fallen and there's a supernatural evil behind it, we should expect to see injustice everywhere, and we shouldn't just tolerate it. We should be working to address it. And, you know, we could argue about how do you do that, but we shouldn't debate the fact that we shouldn't just tolerate evil. We shouldn't. If we tolerate evil, it's, it's showing us we're in the grip of that evil. We're in the grip of it. So, he says, he appointed him, Jesus, to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So, he's saying that Jesus lives in us, his power is available to us. We are not overmatched. And Paul and the apostles, the apostolic writers, all point back to Jesus and say, this is why the world is going to change. And we're going to live it out here, and we're going to be part of the kingdom breaking into the world and pushing evil back. But evil is not going to go back, oh, yeah, we're just leaving. We, you know, you're in town now. You're, you know, there's a new sheriff in town. Okay, we're going. It doesn't work that way. It's like we're moving this way. The kingdom's moving, and evil is pressing against it, and there's just black heel marks as evil gets pushed back. Because as soon as we rest, evil starts pushing us back. Have you ever experienced that in your life? Anybody here a recovering alcoholic? Anybody know a recovering alcoholic? Someone that's been sober for 20 years will tell you. They can walk out of work one day and feel the same temptation to drink that day that they did the day they decided to start living sober. Because evil is still there. 
until Jesus comes and we get resurrected bodies, evil is it. That's what, like Paul says in Romans 8, that creation is groaning. It's groaning. It's groaning for God. God, we want all you have for us. But it's also groaning under the weight, the weight of evil. It's everywhere. It's in us and our struggles. And so Paul says, it's very personal. This is a very personal battle, but it's also a very public battle. And John Barry's battle is different than John Lieb's battle. And it's different than Steve Babin's battle and Brooke's battle. And all of us have a different battle, but then we also have largely the same battle in certain ways. So remember the story of David and Goliath? I want to just, just remind you of this story. And there's a couple of, of parts of it that I think are relevant to what we've touched on here. Because what I want to do is, is wind up by, I want to tell you there is power. I've, I've told you there's power available. And I want to encourage you to plug into it today. But I want to show you, we're not overmatched, no matter how overmatched we feel. And if we plug into God's power, the story of David and Goliath is a picture of spiritual warfare, as as clear in the Old Testament as there was. So the story of David and Goliath begins where the Philistines and Israel line up to, to fight. And sometimes what they would do was, instead of us, like, killing a lot of people, we want to fight, but how about we resolve our fight this way? You send your best guy out, and we'll send our best guy out. And then they'll fight, and if your best guy wins, we become your slaves. If, if your guy loses, you become our slaves. And so Goliath was this man who, depending on what a cubit which is what the passage in 1 Samuel 17 says. A cubit was a measure, you know, uh, somewhere around three feet. But it could, have, you know, it could have been closer to two feet, could have been closer to four feet. So he was somewhere between seven and nine feet tall. He was a big guy. So Goliath would come out. He was their champion. He would walk out, and they were, there, there was a valley, and Israel is on this side of the valley, and the Philistines are on this side. So Goliath would walk down, out of the lines, and he had an armor bearer and who carried a big shield. So it was like he had, a, he had a team with him. And he had this huge sword, he had a javelin, he had all this armor on. Uh, he was a tough dude. He was known as somebody you just didn't pick a fight with. And so he would stand there and he would taunt Israel. And he would mock God. And he did this day after day after day. Well, David was just a, a young teenage boy. He's not a soldier. He's just been, he's, he's a shepherd. He's been watching the family sheep. And in that day and time, he was the youngest son. Some scholars infer that he was an illegitimate son. And there was a lot of embarrassment around David. And just before this, Samuel had gone to, to David's family household because God said, I'm, I'm, I've, I'm replacing Saul. I want you to find a new king go to this guy's house, and, and the father brings all the sons in, his seven sons, and, and Samuel the prophet, who's supposed to be discerning, looks at this one oldest son, Eliab, and he goes, surely that's the Lord's anointed. And God speaks to him and says, you knucklehead, I've rejected him. Samuel the prophet, and, and God says to him, 
don't look at the outside. I look at the heart. Boom. That, that, sh- that should be a bumper sticker that Americans are forced to memorize because <laughs> we're slaves to what's on the outside. And we ignore what's in the heart, unfortunately. So Samuel goes, well, is it that guy? No, 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 no. Do you have any other sons? And he goes, yeah, we got one more. He's out watching the sheep, you know. It's like the dirtiest job. He's, they could have said, he's cleaning the, the toilets, right? He's cooking fries. What, 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 what kind of way could we, you know, disrespect him? What job could we give him? And so he says, bring him in. He comes in. And Samuel says, this is the king. He anoints him with oil. And it says from that point on, the Holy Spirit came on him in power. But he was still just a teenage boy. So this dad says, go and check on your sons, because his oldest sons had gone into the war. And, and the, the front was away from where David lived, so David was going back and forth. And one day he goes there, and this is where the whole Philistine, taunting Israel thing happens. And David says, what? what's going on here? Who is this guy? And they explain to him, well, you know, he's this and that, and he's taunting Israel, and he says he's, he's, our champion, he's their champion, and we need to send a champion out. But every time he comes out and talks, everyone gets afraid, and they back away because they're intimidated by him. This is the thing about spiritual warfare. When you're in spiritual warfare, you get intimidated. You get afraid. There's all these phrases in the Old Testament. You look at the enemy, and you feel like, you're a grasshopper in their sight. Like they say about football teams is they always try to let the biggest guys get off the bus first, you know, like the big, hulky, just buff lineman, and everybody goes, oh, my gosh, that team's going to kick our butt. You know, they, they want to intimidate you. When you're in spiritual warfare, you just feel like you're overmatched. Give up. And Israel was like that. But here's this young guy came in who comes on the scene And the difference with him is he's strong in the Lord, the way Saul used to be. See, Saul should have put on his armor and walked out there and said, Goliath, I'm going to kick you from that rock to that rock. But he didn't. This was a sign of where he was at. But this young kid comes up, and he starts asking him, what's this all about? And then he goes, who's this guy think he is? He's insulting God, and he's insulting us. Now, he's not doing it from a place of pride. See, he knew he represented God. And that this was the enemy mocking God. He didn't take it personally like, oh, who does he think he's talking to me that way or my people? That's a carnal, immature, you know, human perspective. We should love our country. We should love our race. We should love our family. But ultimately... The real reason why our, our family, race, culture, all that is we have relation to God. Otherwise, we're just accidents. We're cosmic accidents with no value, no purpose, no meaning. Good and evil don't exist unless there is a purpose and a creator. And so David said, if someone goes over there and kicks this guy's butt, What's going to happen? And they go, oh, the king says his family won't have to pay taxes, and he'll let him marry the king's daughter, and they just start throwing all these rewards out. And David wants to make sure. You can see he's calculating. It says he goes from person to person. Now, what will happen? Are you sure this is just a rumor? I think, he's, I think this is a young guy. I don't think this, is, this shows you 
David didn't have perfect motives, right? He's thinking, oh, oh, okay, this is pretty good. This sounds like a pretty good deal. Because he then says to the king, because they hear him talking like this, and King Saul calls him, and he says, what? Is this true, King Saul? King Saul says, yeah, I'll do this for you. And he says, listen, I'll go kick this guy's rear. And he says, you're just a kid. He's been a soldier since he was your age. You have no experience. You have no nothing. Here's what David said. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go fight him. And Saul, uh, David says, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it. I struck it and rescued the sheep from its mouth. Then it turned on me. I seized it by its hair, (laughs) struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he's defied the armies of the living God. Here's the point. The Lord delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, and he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. There's something in his voice there. He was strong in the Lord. It was true he didn't, have, he didn't have what would appear to be crucial abilities and skills and experience to challenge someone like this, but God was with him because he said, same is true about the bear, the lion, and I took care of them. And here's what Saul said, go and the Lord be with you. Saul saw, because Saul knew what it was like to have the spirit of the Lord on you and with you and to be strong in the Lord. And so you know the rest of the story. He, he, the king puts this armor on him, and you know, Saul's really tall. David's probably average. And he's, he's walking around his armor, and he, you know, he says, I can't fight in this. I haven't tried it out. I don't, I'm not prepared. And so he, he takes all that off, and he takes his sling, which was a, a, a weapon, and he goes and gets five smooth stones, and he walks into battle, and they have this real dramatic confrontation, and And Goliath is cursing him, and it says David runs toward this guy, meaning Goliath is up on the hill. David David has put himself strategically in the worst position. He's running towards him, going up a hill. This guy's already huge. It's like he's even larger, and he has all the advantages that the higher ground gives you. And David takes a sling, and the guy's got a, a, a shield bearer in front of him, and I think David did like a, like a bend it like Beckham throw, hits him in the forehead, kills him, defeats him. And when he defeated this foe, it was like the spell was broken over Israel. And they all go, yeah, and they all run over and they defeat the Philistine army. One person who said, I'm going to be strong in the Lord, turned the tide of, of a huge, huge battle. So, before you leave, I want to give you an invitation. The, the phrase, be strong in the Lord, it, with, you know, uh, I don't know Greek, but I read this in a book, is phrased in a way, it isn't telling you, Tina, be strong. Like, pull yourself by your bootstraps. It's saying, Tina, be strengthened by the Lord's mighty power. It's saying, let his power work on you. You do feel overmatched. He is more than enough for any enemy you face. 
His name is the name above school bullies. His name is the name above unemployment. His name is the name above marriage problems. His name is the name above racial injustice. His name is the name above sickness. It's above alcohol. All those names are powerful. Those are not insignificant issues. But Jesus is greater than all of them, and he's called us to fight them day to day, week in, week out, to be engaged in this battle, to see the kingdom break into these places and liberate people. More about that later. So the way you do that is, if Tina, if Tina presses into Jesus, he's going to strengthen her. If she draws near to him, he'll draw near to her. Not that he's not already there, but that's a phrase that means when you, when you allow this mighty power that's at your very doorstep room, it will break into your life and you will be more like David than you could ever imagine. You will be like Jesus. So we're going to close and no music, no fanfare, no, none of that. We just say, if, if you feel overmatched, in your life, where is it? What's the name that, that you feel overmatched against? What is it? I want to invite you, before you go, I want to invite like our small group leaders and prayer team people, just come up front. We're just going to pray real briefly for you, and God's going to download power in your life in a fresh way. You've heard the, the word that says, Allow yourself to be strengthened by the Lord. Move towards him. He is in the body. He is here. He's everywhere. But, but God says, I am with and in and among my people. And I have 10,000 experiences in my life where people have prayed for me. And you don't have to tell us your whole story about what the name that you're fighting against has, has done to you. Because some of you don't want to talk about that, but you want the Lord's strength in this battle. And so I want to ask you, I'm just going to pray a quick prayer. And if, if the, the prayer team people, if you guys could just come up front now, wherever helps us. I don't want to like dish it out. Come on, small group leaders, everybody that's ever, if you've ever prayed for anybody at the vineyard once, you're on the prayer team, all right? So just come up front. I always end up standing up here. Oh, it's like, you know, a Three Stooges thing. We're just going to pray real quickly for you and just ask the Spirit to, to give you the strength of Jesus to begin to overcome that name that you're facing. So I'm going to pray and ask the Lord to show you what that name is for you that you're asking for prayer for. And everybody doesn't have to come up here, but if, if you know you've been overmatched and you're feeling it, please... Don't walk away and let the devil just beat the tar out of you and then you just feel guiltier and feel worse. There's no shame. This is for all of us. We're all overmatched and so we all need his power. And actually, I'm just going to call some other people up here to pray. Brooke and Jason, you've led small groups. You've helped us lead groups. Come on. I just, it, it, you know, Bob and Sherry, you guys, you help us pray for people. Just get up here. Come on. When, there's going to be more people coming up here than, than we can pray for. And you can just get the person next to you to pray for you, too. You don't have to. We're not, like, special. 
up here. I am, but, but they're not. <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I didn't have to say that because you all know it. It's, it's all right. I'm humbled enough to know. But seriously, the Lord is here. That name thing is sticking in your head right now. That name that you're battling with. Maybe your family's battled with it. Maybe it just keeps coming back and won't let you go. I want to ask you to just let us put our hands on your shoulders and pray that the Spirit would strengthen you, that you'd experience the power of the name of Jesus for you and that battle with that name that you're facing, okay? Who knows what kind of dramatic things or non-dramatic things are going to happen, but there's going to be a spiritual exchange. We're going to bless you, and you're going to get strengthened. And, and it will prompt you that you can do this one-on-one, too. Lord, strengthen me in the middle of this. Because David went against Goliath in the name of Jesus. I mean, in the, in the name of God, Yahweh. And he, and he said that, and Goliath was defeated. So why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Lord, we, uh, we thank you for your promise of power. We thank you that, Jesus, that at great cost, at the ultimate cost, Jesus, you made your power available to us through your death and burial and resurrection and ascension. And Lord, we have labored with so little of your power, and we want to see that change. And I pray for each person here that's facing a name that you're greater than, but they're being beaten up by it, that you would meet them today as we pray, that you'd meet them at home, you'd meet them over and over, that this, this simple truth we taught today, that that they're in asymmetrical warfare, but you've given them power to win. It would stick with them. It would cling to them. It would remind them. They wake up thinking about it. They go to bed thinking about it. It, it, it. Driving to work, they think about it. Sitting at a dinner table, they think about it. They would talk about it, and they'd begin to experience your power. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to come and empower us according to these promises. In Jesus' name, amen.